This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. talking earlier on when we were in the pub about the problem of consistent excellence. Yeah. <laughs> that if a writer or a filmmaker or a musician <clears throat> just manages to make a series of consistently excellent records or books or films, it almost works against them. My feeling with the Coens is that people look at them and go, ah, yes, oh, another good. consistently excellent Coen Brothers yeah. film. I've already seen half a dozen excellent Coen Brothers films. I'm a huge fan of Inside Lewin Davis, which yeah. is, it came out about five years ago. For me, that is that if that had been made by other filmmakers, that would be acclaimed as a great, great film about the limits of creativity. But because it was a Coen Brothers film, people go, oh, it's but another Coen Brothers film. I, I think that's interesting, but I think there's a body of work there. I mean, you could say the same thing about, I mean, Bergman or Hitchcock, you know, the cons- yeah. consistently excellent. I mean, both, I think made 50 films not all of them maybe as good but the Coen brothers are kind of i think they're in sort of in that league they you're right that they 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 get maybe taken for granted but i think there's always the chance you can go back when we were in Reykjavik god that was we were still ah. doing this podcast when we were in Re- we went to the Lebowski bar in Reykjavik brilliant oh it was good i did have a uh, uh, white rush did you ever meet there's a dutch publisher called old oscar van gelderen have you ever met him no but he looks just really 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 similar to um, uh, Jeff Bridges in that movie. And he has a very, very similar kind of cool, you know, in the way it's a Dutch, has a sort of cool ways of being. He's got Dutch's kind of, yeah, whatever, we'll have, hey, let's have fun, let's get fucked up. Um, but anyway, if Oscar's listening, unlikely. Um, he's a brilliant... Hey, we have listeners he's around a brilliant the world he was and the, lawyers. He was, as you would expect, the publisher that brought Stoner to the world. Was he? Yeah. Um, hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you join us stacking books in a dreary public library in a small northern town, half listening to the buzz of local gossip, hoping that someone impossibly dashing, witty and yet also kind would whisk us all down to the south of France for sun-kissed frolics and romance. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And joining us today is Daisy Buchanan. Hello. Hello. Hello, Daisy Buchanan. Uh, Daisy is a writer, feminist and regular contributor across TV and radio from Woman's Hour in this morning to The Guardian, Telegraph, Grazia and The Pool. Daisy's latest book is How to Be Grown Up and is soon to be followed in March by The Sisterhood a love letter to the women who have shaped me, and that's published, going to be published by Headline. She is the host of the Your Booked 
podcast. Brilliant books podcast. On which I have been uh, privileged to appear uh, before Christmas. Her and her producer, Dale, came round and invaded my privacy. Uh, <laughs> my, with my permission, and looked at my bookshelves and passed judgment on them. We've been in your shed, Andy. You have you been know. in my shed. But the podcast is really brilliant, Backlisted listeners. If you don't know your books, it's people talking about their bookshelves, their book collections... Yes, it's about people's formative reading memories and the books in their life. And what I really, really hope to do, whether or not I succeed, heaven knows, but to describe books as sort of loved, touched, fondled objects. Now, I can't believe I said fondled this early on before the discussion. <laughs> Daisy was keen for me to tell you that she is a proud member of the Jilly Cooper Book Club. Mm. Many of whom, judging by the response on Twitter today, are backlisted listeners. I must say the spike in people going yeah, and saying how excited they were we were doing Jilly Cooper. And Daisy has been to Jilly Cooper's house. So we're also joined by Ian Patterson, who is a former second-hand bookseller. I am. A recovering academic. Also true. And a practising poet. Certainly so. (laughs) He taught English for almost 20 years at Queen's College, Cambridge. Ian's latest poetry collection, Bound to Be, was published by Equipage in 2017. And his poem, The Plenty of Nothing, an elegy for his late wife, the writer Jenny Diskey, was the winner of the 2017 Forward Prize for Best Single Poem. Ian, you wrote a long essay about Jilly Cooper, which was published in the LRB in 2017, I think, yes. And you too have been to Jilly Cooper's house. Yes, I have. Jilly wrote to me and invited us to lunch, Olivia and I, to lunch after she had read it, which is very flattering and was a very enjoyable occasion indeed. Because you got into the Telegraph, it was that. You'd you'd, you'd actually, because you you hadn't really compared it exactly to Dickens and... and, uh, Well, you... You sort of did, but... It wasn't just the Telegraph, it was about seven papers. It was was mad, it was a mad... It 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 went viral, the story. And and it said, Cambridge Don compares... Bonking Jilly to Oscar, <laughs> Austin, Austin and Dickens. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a bonking as if she's in a constant state of frottage. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> At least. Yes, well, you probably gathered what we're here to talk about. We are, in fact, here to talk about Jilly Cooper. But it's a specific. We're at least using one Jilly Cooper to jumpstart, which I'm sure will be a, a more general discussion of her oeuvre. It's Imogen, first published by Arlington Books in 1978 although most famously the paperback, I think, that came out in 79. It was the fifth in her now legendary series of seven romances published between 1975 and 1981. So it's now uh, the customary question, Andy. What have you been reading this week? I've been reading a novel by J.L. Carr, and long-term listeners to this podcast will recall that the very first episode of Backlisted was about J.L. Carr's novel A Month in the Country, and in my real and occasionally private life, I have uh, attempted to read one J.L. Carr novel a year since we did that podcast. Uh, because uh, if you remember, John, one of the things about J.L. Carr, which, was, which is fascinating as a writer, is he never wrote the same, same novel twice. Right. And in fact, although you can recognise certain tropes repeating if you read a few of them, nevertheless, they tend to be very different from one another. He tended to find an event in his own life that he would then work out from imaginatively. And he was a publisher as well. As I said on the podcast, I remember buying books from him when he came into the shop in like 1993 when he was 
hand-selling copies of Harpole and Foxborough. Anyway, the novel of his that I read was How Steeple Cinderby Wanderers Won the FA Cup, <laughs> which, as you will appreciate, was quite a reach for me because it's about football. And as the author of a book about how much I dislike sport, uh, <laughs> I thought, well, I'll give this a go. And, of course, it's wonderful. And several people had said to me, well, it's not really about football. It is about English country life. It is about English country life, but let's not kid ourselves. It is about football. Football, Uh, There is a spoiler in the title as well. Uh, (laughs) They do win the FA Cup, so I'm giving nothing away. But what I would say about it is it's one of his more straightforwardly funny novels. It's quite slight, but it has all those beautiful breaks into lyricism which I think other novelists would find it quite difficult to manage the contrast. He does this very brilliant thing, a bit like Beryl Bainbridge. He does this really brilliant thing of of managing to balance character against situation to give something melancholy, funny but melancholy, I think. There's also that that kind of football nostalgia, which I know you don't massively indulge in, but the the kind of, you know, the the old, you know, Jumpers for goalposts, leather, yeah. heavy leather. The footballs. The, the book, weirdly, that I, I that reminded me of it when I read it right back when we did the podcast. So, I, of course, my memory of it is slight now, but except <laughs> enjoying it a lot. Was it reminded me of Best and Edwards? The uh, there's a, there are bits oh, that's of, a good book. There are there are bits yeah. of the, about the the Duncan Edwards story and and, and, and and kind of provincial English football and the the kind of the culture of the game that he captures. As you say, it's it's about rural life, but it is also about football culture. I, I thought what I would do is instead of reading an excerpt <laughs> from How Steeple Cinderby Wanderers Won the FA Cup, I'd just read the blurb because we like blurbs on this podcast. And J.L. Carr wrote these blurbs himself, of course. This is an edition published by his publisher, the Quince Tree Press. Uh, so I'll just read you how J.L. Carr wanted you to think of this novel. This is how the blurb starts. Book writing can be a tedious job, needing some incentive to keep one at it. The impulse here was, can this unbelievable feat be made to sound like the truth, even though it didn't happen? So I stacked the cards. A foreigner with remarkable theories, two young men with good reasons for having quit top-class football, a chairman of Napoleonic ability. Then I dredged up memories of 1930 when I was an unqualified teacher, 18 years old, and playing that single season for South Milford White Rose, when we won a final which never ended. (laughs) Pitch invasion and furious fights are not new things. I learnt much of rural life during that long-gone autumn, winter and early spring. But is this story believable? Ah, it all depends upon whether you want to believe it. J.L. Carr, 1992. Brilliant. Now... What an extraordinary blurb. Yeah. Doesn't that make you want to read the book? Absolutely. He's no, J.L. Khan, no fool, <laughs> I would yeah. suggest there. And the other thing is that there is a kind of harmonic resonance with uh, A Month in the Country because you feel that a lot of the, the detail of his understanding and feel for rural life that that book is, is full of is, is also there in, in, in Cinderby. I'm not going to read Wonders. it, but he does a similar um, fabulous thing as in A Month in the Country, where he holds something back for the last page and he does a kind of switch on the last page, which is extremely moving and makes you feel like what you've been reading, while it's been presented to you as quite light, 
has in fact meant a lot more to the person telling you the story than you might at first yeah. have thought. So I strongly recommend that. Yeah, How Steeple Soon to Be Wanderers won the FA Cup by JL Carr, now published, in fact, by Penguin Modern Classics. There is a Penguin oh, Modern really? Classic edition. Oh, that's brilliant. John, what have you been reading this week? Well, I've decided to talk about this week not a single book, but a, a whole lifetime. It, very sad uh, and announced this week the death of John Birmingham, who John Birmingham's one of the, I think, giants of children's book writing and illustration came to prominence 1964 with his book Balker, The Goose Without Feathers, and has since then, right until the very end, produced remarkable books, uh, beautiful, visual, rich books, very funny, dry, wry, witty stories. And I had the great fortune to almost publish his last book. Um, We worked very hard on a book of his called Champagne, and we're about to open some champagne. To one of the great things about John was, if whenever you went to see him, there would be champagne on the go. And I'm pretty sure that wasn't just because he was doing the book; he loved it. And um, I remember going to see him. It was a long and complicated story as to why, but he couldn't find a publisher for the book, which seemed incredible. You know, he's being one, having been one of the great. He lives in Hampstead, wonderful rambling house with his his wife, who's also a, a genius of the genre, uh, Helen Oxenbury. And always champagne open. And he came in the whole book, uh, which is here, the whole book was was already done, really. It was just all on a wall. He said, I finished my wall. So he said, if, if the wall's finished, then book's finished, really. Just need to find a way of getting it printed. Mm. Anyway, long story short, we couldn't quite do it on Unbound. But I worked uh, with his wonderful uh, designer, Ian Craig, who had been uh, back at, at, at Random House Children's Books for many years. The book was laid out by John and Ian together and it came out it came out uh it came out last year and I brought a few of my favorites in oh get off my train oh, get off our train and oh John yes. Patrick Norman McHennessy the book who was always late but I also brought in this incredibly beautiful uh, autobiography which is full of and there's apart from amazingly lovely photographs of of uh, of John and Helen when they were younger riding around on Vespers in in Europe um there is his very dry gloss on his own books. There's a wonderful forward by Morris Sendak, because mm. I think Morris Sendak. Maurice. Maurice, of course, Maurice Sendak. Um, <laughs> and then on the back, there's a brilliant, uh, brilliant thing from uh, Raymond Briggs as well saying, that said, Birmingham is a blooming nuisance. He should retire now. After all, he's very old. But no, no doubt he will go on and on doing yet more brilliant stuff, Raymond Briggs. Um, You've got there, Courtney, oh, about the dog. Courtney, which this is... is just the most wonderful. So, so this was published in the early 90s. And um, I don't want to give the ending away well, no, it's, it's wonderful. It, it it's says, what the dog gets up to in the story. Courtney is a dog. And this is what he says about the story, right? He says that Courtney must be loosely based on our dog Stanley, who was probably a cross between a Labrador and a Border Collie. All the animals we've ended up as characters in stories sooner or later. And he does the best dogs the best animals. I bought Stanley from a pet shop in Hastings. He was very likely a result of some liaison between a couple of curs around the fishing huts on the beach. We used to talk to him in a North Country accent, which really had no logic. (laughs) (laughs) There are lots of things going on in this story, says John. The parents have an obsession with racial purity and are determined that the new pet should be a thoroughbred. (laughs) The father is suspicious of this male who has come into the house and the mother develops a closer relationship with the dog than with her husband. (laughs) I just love... His work. It seems appropriate then, given that John Burnham's champagne and the subject of this week's podcast, Julie Cooper, that John is about to. Oh, 
Oh, and this is, I'm sure, very relatable for people at home as we sit here quaffing champagne uh, when you listen to this at seven o'clock on a Monday morning. Enjoy your dry January, kids. Yeah. Anyway, should we, should we toast? Well, we have John Birmingham's fabulous last book that was finally printed, uh, Champagne in Front of Us, but I think he would have loved the idea that we toast him on air. So here, here's to John Birmingham. Birmingham. <laughs> well said. <laughs> I have to raise any other business issue, which is to say that I will be interviewing... Pulitzer Prize winning novelist Andrew Sean Greer about his novel Less, which is a great favourite of ours at Backlisted. We talked about it on the podcast last year. It's one of my favourite books of last year. I will be interviewing him at Waterstones Piccadilly on Monday, February the 4th. So um, if you're in London and you feel like coming along and listening to Andrew be brilliant about his wonderful novel, please come along. We'll be back in just This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. It's a sec. Now, to the matter in hand. Should we start with the usual question, Andy? Yeah. So turning to Jilly Cooper and specifically to Imogen, Daisy, can you remember when you first read this book, this novel, Imogen? I'm pretty sure I would have been about 13 or 14 in an area of my school called the Small Hall, which was really a canteen, but they wanted to kind of push up. And I read Riders and Rivals and The Man Who Made Husbands Jealous. But this, I remember thinking, was about Jilly really getting teenagers and everyone else in Jilly's other books, which I'd love. They all seemed fantastically glamorous and to live lives entirely unlike mine. And Imogen was a girl who worried about her weight and worried that she was a bit boring and worked in a library and longed for someone glamorous to sort of come in and change it. And I thought, Jilly is writing my life. Where is this sexy tennis player? He's clearly nowhere in the small hall. <laughs> we had a slightly creepy gardener who got fired, who I think would have whisked in and done the job, but it wasn't quite the same. Ian, Jilly Cooper, when mm. did you first read or encounter Jilly Cooper's work? Well, I wasn't really a teenager in any real sense. <laughs> I was more like 66. (laughs) (laughs) I did know about Jilly Cooper and I had read her columns in the Sunday Times when I were knobber to lad, but, um, and enjoyed them very much, but I never actually 
thought that I would enjoy her books. But when Jenny was ill and everything seemed pretty dreadful, I wasn't really able to concentrate on the sort of reading I ought to have been doing. And Olivia actually said, you ought to read Jilly Cooper. And pressed a Jilly Cooper into my hand. (laughs) And I said, oh, God, no, I couldn't do that. And she said, go on, just try it. And I did. And I couldn't stop. I was completely captivated, Mm. partly because it was so much more captivating than I'd imagined it would be, Mm -hmm. and partly because there was nothing else, really. So I just read and read and read and read and read. Um, And did you start with the later... I started with, I think, Rivals. Okay. Um, But I quite soon moved on to... I think Harriet was probably the first and then Prudence and then Imogen and so mm-hmm. on because they were so undemanding in some ways. And in they, some ways, In yes. some ways. Um, and also, in the big books, as one might think of them, <laughs> those serious weighty tomes like, you know, riders and mm. rivals, there's all sorts of grown-up stuff <laughs> that... Um, I might have identified with or failed to identify with. But in these romances, it's like Shakespeare's last plays or something. It's just a kind of little magical fantasy world Mm. where Mm. everything is... Yeah, or or sort of Bart preludes. There's some sort of purity about that. Absolutely the word I was going for, purity. There are no Mm. distractions for the action. I will say not to cut, because I know we're talking about the romances and I think listeners are probably familiar with according to Twitter, according uh, familiar with it all, but especially with the, um, ah, the word on the tip of my tongue is bonkbusters, but there we are. Um, <laughs> but I do love the, I guess, the sort of the 80s, because it's quite Judith Crancy as well, isn't it? Like business and, um, you know, people board meetings and people bursting into rooms and having fabulous business ideas. And I find that really, really good fun. Rivals is about a television franchise. Yeah. And when I read it, I had no idea. I thought... ITV was just ITV and I had no idea there were regional variations that people bid for in consortiums. So that was, you know, as, lot, as well as a sex education, there was quite a lot of, oh, that's how telly works. But um, Imogen and Octavia and Harriet and Prudence and those books, they're a world that maybe wasn't exactly familiar to me, but felt like something that I could know and I could appreciate. I've got a, a blurb to read here, which is the jacket flap on a republication of Imogen from the, I think this is like an early 80s edition. You can yeah. see Jilly's on the front. It says Jilly Cooper, her Riviera romance, Imogen. Yeah. Now, I don't want to objectify our esteemed author, but can we talk about how absolutely stunning Jilly looks on that cover? That on that the cover? Beautiful photo. On, 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 on all, all these covers. It looks incredible. I mean, it, and what, a, what a brave and extraordinary thing to do. I was never quite sure. I, I always assumed it was her on the cover. She's on the cover of all these of all 70s of mm-hmm. romances. That's, that- this is the blurb that went out on this book, right? And, well, I'll, I'll just re- I'll read it to you and then you can tell me what you think. Girls like Imogen, tied to dreary jobs in provincial towns, are apt to dream of romantic escapes to sun-drenched beaches and to conjure up visions of ultimate bliss in the bronzed arms of the athletic heroes of their nighttime fantasies. Seldom, however, do they have to face up to their dreams coming true. (laughs) In Imogen, a rustic Yorkshire ingenue 
finds her dreams coming true rather faster than she can cope with them. How she parries the advances of Nikki Beresford, the lecherous tennis ace, and copes with the gropes of the rest of the Riviera drones will bring a warm glow of reassurance to all those nervous mums whose daughters' tender bosoms have been overexposed to the Saint-Tropez sun. (laughs) 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 Whoever wrote this, my cap is off to you. Imogen's adventures, as told by Gilly, are totally realistic in spite of the fact that, unmoved by modern conventions, she is a girl who does not regard her virginity as something to be lightly thrown away. Jilly's account of a sensitive girl's approach to her own crisis of conscience in the face of a libidinous and totally materialistic society (laughs) is handled with that subtlety and delicacy which distinguishes all her work. Very good. That's really good. At this point, I'm going to bring in our producer... (laughs) <laughs> Nikki Birch. Now, Nikki, how, when did you first read a Jilly Cooper book? Probably when travelling in some hostel. You know, you have one of those books that you just pick up because it's the only one there, and that was probably the riders. But I, I can't really remember it very clearly. And, had, and you hadn't read this before this week, I hadn't had you? I had read Imogen before this week. And what did you make of it? At first, my jaw was dropped to the floor. I think I was really, I was like, I tweeted to both of you and were like, WTF? Yeah. <laughs> OMG. <laughs> you did. Yeah. You did. FFS. Yeah. My immediate reaction is I'm so excited to hear what you guys say about this. But um, it was basically because the treatment of women just shocked me completely. It's like, wow, the last 50 years, we have actually come on a really long way. I think the thing, Nikki, I found, we'll talk about this, the thing that was brilliant. So you sent me and John a message that said, what, 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 what? Yeah. what? And then... 24 hours later, you sent me another message saying, I think I'm going to read another one. <laughs> I must say, she gets you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was totally locked in. I didn't yeah. do anything else apart from apart from read Jilly Cooper for, for sort of 24 hours. So I, I'm, I'm hand in heart, it was fun. Right? Yeah. I suppose I was just shocked by perhaps some of the things you're going to talk about in the book. I yeah, was like, yeah. are you serious? Domestic violence in passion, that's okay. You know, things like that I found well, like really difficult. We'll come yeah. on to this. This is very interesting. And I think one of the things that I found very interesting coming to the book, having not read it before, there are things in the books which are, you know, as we're always saying, of their time. Yep. When my wife, Mrs. Tina Miller, discovered that she doesn't normally listen to Battlestick because she because uh, oh. she thinks it encourages me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, But when she found out we were doing these books, she said this. Jilly's 1970s romances, Bella, Emily, Harriet, Imogen, Lisa and Co, Octavia and the best one, Prudence, (laughs) were my favourite books as a teenager and I read them all numerous times. As Andy will attest, I can recall each one in forensic detail. My very favourite was Prudence with the cold fish, Pendle Mulholland, dashing older brother Ace and sexy younger brother Jack. I reread this, Imogen and the short stories, Lisa and Co over Christmas, and whilst in some ways they've dated, I suspect someone may have done an editorial clean-up in the 90s to remove a few colloquialisms we might not use today. I thought how fortunate I was to read these books at the right age. It's sort of what you're saying, Daisy, isn't it? They are romantic, funny, literate, sexy but not too sexy, and best of all, the heroines are real girls with real girls' bodies, hair, aspirations at problems, at least within Jilly's enchanted settings. I also thought... What a debt Helen Fielding owes to these books. Yeah, totally. Mm. But what I like best about them hasn't really dated at all. Jilly's message to her readers, which is just be yourself. Yep. What do you think, Daisy? Do you think they, I mean, you know, there are things in them that we might look twice at. 
now, but that stuff feels very current, doesn't it? It really does. I will say, I think I'm about, on a good day, three stone heavier than a fat Jilly Cooper heroine. <laughs> <laughs> the the weights, um, you know, that that's the one thing that still troubles me. I know there are plenty of other really problematic things that should trouble me more, but I'm just like, oh God. But what I really love about the way she writes and the observations she makes, and I think this is perhaps one of the reasons why Jilly and writers kind of in her her school or writers who are linked with her get dismissed is she's so unremittingly honest and funny about how bloody knackering it is to be a woman and that constant feeling of not looking quite right I think it might be Fanny in the pursuit of love by Nancy Mitford says something along the lines of if you're sort of constantly looking at your reflection and I'm going to paraphrase horribly in my experience it's not because you think you look great it's because you suspect something is amiss and so much attention is given to, you know, to clothes and appearance. There's a really fabulous makeover in <laughs> this book. And I think I was thinking how interesting it is because the makeover has become, it was such a big part of, I guess, sort of 90s teen comedy dramas and so much in cinemas. And I was thinking, you know, of course, like Clueless is, I think, a film that is a great mm. debt to Julie Cooper. But of course, obviously, you know, Clueless is Emma. And I think, you know, Jane Austen, Angelie Cooper are similar. They're really, really brilliantly bitchy. What I love so much about Jilly is her voice and her tone and her disdain for earnestness. In my um, Jilly Cooper book club, hello. <laughs> it was so interesting to meet these women. And these women are in their, we're in our broadly 30s and 40s. We're a real range of people. There are lots of, um, journalists like me but also you know lawyers finance experts people who sort of work in, in the public sector and the arts people who do really big important jobs you put us all together in a room you'd know there was something that we had that we shared these are women who are irreverent women who have a sense of humor about themselves Fun and women and who love pleasure yeah. and women who frequently look into shop windows thinking something isn't quite right <laughs> You mentioned Austin there. I mean, it, I, what I found notable about the way Jilly writes, certainly in these books, is the prose is a really fascinating mixture. It's like a halfway point between Austin and Woodhouse, it seemed to yeah. me. that the, the prose is often written for the joy of writing the prose. You know, the jokes come out. She likes a pun. <clears throat> she likes a literary reference. She likes to keep the plot bowling along. She's very good on detail, though. I mean, she's amazingly mm. good. She, I mean, you know, she started as a journalist. And that one of the things that I've, I've read this week that really loved, I wanted to try and get some context to when the book was being written. And during, it was published in 78, she was living in Putney. And there is a truly fabulous diary called The Common Years mm. about her life in Putney and dog walking. What you get the sense of is somebody who's she's living a life, she's writing about it as a journalist, she's also writing, t turning mm. it into fiction mm. at the same time. It's all one thing. She's writing about what she knows. But right? she's her research for the books is, is, is famously kind of exhausting. And even in the romances, you know, the, the details of the hotel rooms in Imogen and, and the meals, it's not product placement, mm. but you get a sense of 70s kind of boutiques on the Riviera. Mm. I love Jackie Collins. I love so many writers who are writing 
commercial women's fiction at this time. But there are definitely, I think, you know, particularly American writers who be like, they went to the best restaurant and said, I want a bottle of your most expensive champagne. And they had lobster and they had steak. And there's none of that in Jilly. She is known, I think, as a writer of glamour, but her domestic detail is magnificent. And what I love about Imogen is before you go to the Riviera, I'd really forgotten how good she is on the detail of the home and the way, you know, the sort of the parish magazine sort of left crumpled and the, you know, the vague mum and the being a bit embarrassed because you're not having a joint for Sunday lunch and you're having macaroni cheese and, <laughs> you know, the, the dog being over familiar and awkward and hiding pants and claiming they're for a jumble sale on their own knickers, the laundry that's dropped off a radiator. I think that's, I mean, I, I, that's absolutely right. I think her detail is extraordinary. I think... It's something that she does share with Jane Austen, who was also writing about the life that she was living at yeah. the same time. And Woodhouse has the other side of her, which is the, the ability to put fantasy into the clearest and most elegant prose. And she combines those two things quite wonderfully, I think, um, with a lightness of touch and a capacity to feel as if the novel is being written for you as you read it. Um, which is a really she has that thing that Douglas this is brilliant I've said this one backlisted before but I think about it a lot it's a really good turn of phrase Douglas Adams description of Woodhouse as Woodhouse as pure word music mm. and at the at her best you can feel her when she writes getting into kind of that kind of flow where the words are beginning to form this beautiful light kind of andante uh, of humour, humour and intelligence kind of pushing the, the thing th along. The great thing about her humour, particularly the puns and the jokes, yeah. <laughs> is that it doesn't matter who articulates them. No. Mm. It's, it's always, in some sense, the authorial character of the prose. It's, the, mm. the, it's part of the rhythm of the presence of the same person managing the whole thing. Well, we'd like to, one, if one of you would like to select something to read from Jilly's work, while you do that, let's listen to you. You were talking about Jilly writing about what she knows. This is a clip of, from Jilly Cooper talking on the Late Late Show in 2016 about how she got started as a writer. I went to a party when I was, um, a dinner party, and I met this lovely big man with a big laugh, and he said, what was I doing at the moment? So I said, well, I was newly married, and... It was quite difficult because I got up in the morning and I went to work and um, then I shopped during my lunch hour, got all the things of food and I went back to work and then I went home and I washed my husband's shirts, I ironed them, I um, cooked dinner, I cleaned the flat and then we made love all night and then I got up in the morning. And the next day, I did the same thing. And I did the same thing again for six months. And then I died of exhaustion. Yeah, it, it's a very demanding uh, it was, lifestyle. It was. It was lovely. I, mean, I was very happy doing it. I'm but, sure you were. Uh, anyway, but... <laughs> oh, it's a very nice way to spend some time. It was nice. But, yeah. I mean, so Godfrey laughed and he said, oh, gosh, write about it. And so I did. And I handed it in. It was in the English colour magazine, Sunday Times, and then it appeared and I got nine jobs offered that week. The thing about Jilly Cooper is, as you can hear from that clip, is, you know, anyone could get a break, well, not anyone could get a break, but if you get that break, what do you do with that break? 
she works really hard. She works really hard all the way through the late 60s, through the 70s. And she's operating at a really high level. She's writing a novel a year. She's writing, She's a regular columnist in more than one newspaper. She's, she's publishing a collection of journalism. She's got her diary and she's, and she's, writing, and she's writing fiction. And, the, you know, the, the, the Sunday Times pieces, some of the, uh, some of the interviews are just fabulous. I mean, reading her, she did two interviews with Thatcher, which both of which... Oh, she, brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. She did a mm. terribly damaging interview with Neil Kinnock. <laughs> did she? Yeah, which is, I mean, unfortunately also, very we, funny. But, she, you know, she's, she talks about the Tory party conference. I mean, this is a proper satire. Ted Heath sat sulking and huffed up like a great gelded tomcat whose mistress has forgotten the whiskers. <laughs> so, I, I mean, she's, she's good. That's the thing. If you listen to the... The first Desert Island Discs. It's it's fascinating to listen to that. She she recorded another one in 2016 with Kirsty Young, but the first one was Roy Plumley, where she flirts outrageously with Roy Plumley all the way through. But there is a kind of you you do get that sense of she'd only written six books at that stage, but she's a fully formed only. she's a fully formed <laughs> yeah. character. I mean, she she is Jilly Cooper to all intents and purposes. The Jilly before she has written all the books that made her famous, and you know what she chose is the book her Desert Island book. I do know, but go on. <laughs> yeah, it's Anthony Pohl. Ah. Uh, with whom she was very friendly, in yeah. fact. Um, and quotes uh, occasionally, in, in, in certainly in the I journalism. Try, I tried to get hold of a copy of her 1980 book, Super Cooper. Yeah, it can't So get named because Super Trooper by ABBA was in the charts <laughs> at the time. So she had an eye. Who wants to read us something yeah. from Imogen? Well, I could read a bit. It's chosen pretty much at random. <laughs> well, I forgot to do it, you see. Anyway, it goes something like this. Can I go to the loo, said Imogen, who didn't want to, but was desperate to repair her face before Nicky could compare her any more with this ravishing creature. Down the passage on the left, said Cable. We'll be in here. Do you think five bikinis will be enough, Nicky? What price Lady J's moth-eaten red bathing dress now, thought Imogen <laughs> savagely. As she combed the tangles out of her hair, her face was all eyes in a for-once pale face. She pinched some of Cable's rouge, but it made her look like a clown, so she rubbed it off again. She found Nicky and Cable in a room where everything seemed scarlet. Carpet, curtains, and every inch of wall that wasn't covered by books and pictures. Even the piano was painted red, and in one corner stood a huge stuffed bear wearing a scarlet regimental jacket. Oh, what a heavenly room, sighed Imogen. Cable looked at her with surprise. Do you think so? Matt's taste, not mine. Mm. <laughs> Detail. Yeah. Detail. Mm. Bear in a regimental jacket. Bears do furnish a room. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite Henry Jamesian as well, I think, that there's <laughs> so little about Cable, but you find out so much about her just from her, her reaction mm. and her sort of positioning against Imogen and that pitching something on and taking it off again, being very evocative. Mm. Daisy, have you got a bit there that you would like to share with uh, the room? I do. Stop me if this is too long. James Edgeworth had the rosy complexion, puffed out cheeks and curly hair of cherubs that blow the wind at the corner of old maps. He was small, plump and wore a yachting cap and a look of eager expectancy. Let's have a drink, said Nicky. Tomato juice for me, said Yvonne. 
Pity to waste it when it's duty-free, said Nicky, giving her one of his hard, sexy looks. Oh, well, if you twist my arm, I'll have a baby sham, said Yvonne. Everyone else had double brandies. You write for the papers, don't you, said Yvonne. Rather fun, I should think. I was rather good at English at school. They all said I should take up writing. Matt looked at her. It would have been tragic to deprive the modelling world, he said dryly. Imogen suppressed a smile. That's what I thought, said Yvonne. Now I just write Jumbo's speeches. His speeches? Didn't you know? She bared her teeth like the wolf in Red Riding Hood. James is a prospective candidate for Cockfosters. He's awfully busy at the moment. But if you ask him nicely, I'm sure he'd spare the time to give you an interview for your paper. I'll remember that, said Matt. Mind you, said Yvonne, I do think the articles you write are rather, well, exaggerated. In what way, said Matt, his eyes narrowing. Well, that piece last week on Northern Ireland. I mean, I didn't finish it. And I know all journalists sensationalise things for the sake of circulation. Go on, said Matt, an ominous note creeping into his voice. (laughs) You know. It's just so bitchy and Yvonne doesn't exist. That is her journalism, giving a terrible person enough rope to hang themselves Mm. and doing that in the dialogue Mm. and the reactions. Again, it's a holiday we've all been on, you know, lumped together with some people you quite like and several people you really don't like. I think Matt says that, doesn't he? You need that. And that's something I didn't appreciate as a teenage reader. But I do know a bit like Hindus, where there's always someone who's the worst. And if you're everyone seems quite nice. Oh, it's me. Or maybe I'm the worst. (laughs) You say something in your article, um, Ian, that really interested me. Because it's her world and she's kind of controlling it, you know who the good people are. You have no choice but to like Imogen. Is that part of what you think makes it so successful? You know who the bad people are and you know who the good people are, but what you don't know is how they're going to interact. I think that's right. And I think you don't know how the scenes are going to follow each other you don't know who's going to go wrong what's going to fall out of place and even though you know it'll end happily you don't you 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 are sitting on the edge of your seat metaphorically at least uh, as you read through it because actually I always feel quite comfortable reading her I don't actually Mm. feel physically uncomfortable but I do feel kind of mentally a bit agitated about how long this is going to go on until somebody (laughs) sees that actually somebody they're in love with is in love with them and they're in love with them, which they haven't noticed. And that really... That's Austin, though, isn't it? It's Austin. It's Woodhouse as well. Um, It's it's the, the way in which an imbroglio is created and then disentangled. It's Shakespeare, too. Um, not that I'm saying you know, Cambridge Don says. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, but you do. But you do say you know you do say in your piece. I think this is worth uh, highlighting because I can see exactly what you mean here. That certainly the later novels, because she's written effectively. This is like a a twelve volume Roman fleuve. Yeah, <laughs> where where which she might not have intended to start writing, but it, the same characters recur over a number of decades. Mm. That it's ended and, up being a, like a Dickens. Marshalling of but, of and certainly pole like you know yeah, yeah. That, that. we have a a clip here of this is from the desert island discs John that you were talking about the later desert island discs this is with Jilly telling us why she thinks these particular novels were 
the romance novel of the 70s was so successful. You began writing novels then in the 70s. I was one of those young teenagers who devoured them, names like Emily and Belia and Harriet and Octavia and Prudence and Imogen. I couldn't Mm. get enough of them. I wanted you to write more. At the time, (laughs) why do you think they were successful? Because they flew off the shelves, those. I think they were successful because the men were lovely. I mean, the men were very, very attractive. A lot of Leo in the men, a lot of men I knew. I think if you can be funny and have a glamorous hero at the end, I think it gets people going. Now, Nikki's got her head in her hands <laughs> after listening to that. See, Jilly thinks it's because of the lovely, lovely men and how they behaved so appallingly oh, that you Come ladies on. just can't resist, Nick. Surely, Nikki, you must love Matt. <laughs> lovely Irish kind of... Can we talk about the fact that Matt, who is presented as, oh, he's much older than the heroine and he's a bit rugged and can he ever love Imogen because he'd loved before and he's got this long past and life and history and he's 32. (laughs) I know. (laughs) This struck me quite forcibly (laughs) as I was rereading it yesterday. I've got a bit here. This is is for me. This is my favourite short passage in this novel. And it brings together what I think this this unlikely combination that Jilly manages in the prose, right? So Imogen, it's near the start of the book, and Imogen has been invited away on holiday by the tennis pro Nicky Beresford. And he's written to her parents saying, nothing will have happened to your daughter. A deeply, deeply sinister man. <laughs> anyway, so Imogen is packing for the holiday. It's worth saying, isn't it, that Imogen's father is a vicar. Mm. Yeah, Yeah. very much so. She's naive, but she's no fool. On the eve of her holiday, the mauve packets of the pill were safely tucked into the pocket of her old school coat hanging at the back of her wardrobe. She'd been taking it for eight days now and she felt sick all the time, but she wasn't sure if it was side effects or nervousness at the thought of seeing Nicky. It was such ages since their last meeting, she felt she'd almost burnt herself out with longing. Then she was worried about the sex side. She'd been taking surreptitious glances at the joy of sex when the library was quiet, and the whole thing seemed terribly complicated. Did one have to stop talking during the performance like a tennis match? And wouldn't Nikki, accustomed to lithe, beautiful female tennis players, find her much too fat? She put her hot forehead against the bathroom window. In the garden, she could see her father talking to the cat and staking some yellow dahlias beaten down by the rain and wind. That's what I need, she thought wistfully. I'll never blossom properly in life unless I'm tied to a strong, sturdy (laughs) stake. (laughs) Now, hang on. Whoa, whoa. Hang on. She also packed a pile of big paperbacks. She'd never got round to reading. Daniel Deronda. Yeah. Lark Rise to Candleford, Scott Fitzgerald and Tristram Shandy. <laughs> oh. On the bed lay a box of tissues. They don't have the kind of loo paper you can take your makeup off with in France, Miss Hockney had told her. A cellophane bag of cotton wool balls and a matching set of Goya's passports she had won in the church fate raffle. <laughs> Oh, I think this is the brilliance of... This is what's brilliant about Judy Cooper. This is exactly what my wife was saying about her message to her readers is be yourself. You can be silly and you can also take Tristram Shandy on holiday with you. And we're shown that that Imogen has a good go at reading Tristram Shandy before getting bored with it and then deciding she's going to read The Great Gatsby instead. So I think that's really... That seems to me a really positive message about the capabilities of the girls she's writing about you can you can do yeah. what you want there is another message though which is 
Imogen does not have any any point in the story where Imogen isn't constantly thinking about a man. The only point where she's not thinking about a man is a very key plot point mm. where she rescues a young boy. But there is nothing in the story which is being passively led by a man. But I think that at the time, and even, you know, to an extent now, without wanting to sort of divulge too much personal information, someone who was, you know, my father isn't a vicar, but I was brought up by a very strict Catholic family. And I remember that sort of with my first boyfriend. Because like the bit I, the other part I was I selected to read was when Imogen loses her pill. She's got the pill, and it's always the pill, isn't it? Not her pills, her pill, singular. She's <laughs> left them in a pocket and it gets given to the church jumble sale and she has to rescue them. And there's a horrible nosy old lady and a kind lady who knows what's going on and makes sure she gets them back. But that, you know, being pushed and pulled, I think that she was a real a social chronicler. And I think that it's interesting Perhaps even politically, Jilly Cooper's writing at a time when women didn't feel as though, you know, their bodies belonged to anyone. They were either being controlled by their parents or being controlled by some man. No, no non-straight people in Jilly Cooper. A few um, tokenistic ones in the later books. They don't turn up here. I think there's um, there's a reference to being queer that's uh, not in the, uh, the 2019 woke sense. But my goodness, there is a lot that's problematic and tricky and infuriating and upsetting and difficult. But I think that it is worth remembering. She was a really, really brilliant observer of a time she was living in, which was really, really, really progressive in some ways, but also shockingly not progressive in others. I mean, the other thing I'd say, Nick, in response to what I think is perfectly justifiable criticism is, her heroines, to use the horrible phrase that we use now, have agency. She might be thinking about those things, but she does what she wants. You know, the will of the heroines is the thing that pushes out in the end. Can right? I talk about, have you read um, Harriet yet? So Harriet is, I think, perhaps a book yet. that's perhaps most similar to yeah. Imogen. And because other books as well, there are heroines that are much, much, much spikier than Imogen. I love Imogen like I love Fanny Price. And nobody loves Fanny Price. Everybody thinks Fanny Price is really wet and pathetic. But as someone who often feels very wet and pathetic, I think that's my girl. Harriet is set at Oxford. Harriet is a student. She's beautiful she's shy i believe she's a virgin she is seduced by simon villiers villiers an actor who entrances everybody with his glamour and the fact that he's clearly going on to great things and he fancies a crack at the you know the pretty shy girl who turns up at a party and harriet gets pregnant simon wants nothing to do with it um harriet sort of has the baby, even though everybody's desperate for her not to, leaves in shame and ends up as a nanny to a glamorous man. Can you guess what's going to happen? <laughs> but something that really struck me about that, because much is, much is made about the fact that Harriet really enjoys sex and it's something she's really choosing to do and she's, for this, the first time in her life, sort of excited about something that isn't reading. And... Oh, God. I mean, I, th- I think, I don't think anyone would be upset if I said, I'm pretty sure Jilly Cooper likes sex a lot. <laughs> and it seemed possibly not so much now, but, you know, for me at the time as a teenager, that seemed like a, 
a revolution yeah. and having the sort of sex education and I was lucky to be of an age when it was there but it was very much god there is another Dylan Moran joke that you know said the 60s being about free love and the Beatles and that's all have a good time and the 80s was don't fuck anyone or you'll die here's MC Hammer <laughs> and it was very much my sex education in the late 90s early years here's everything that can go wrong here's everything you'll be afraid of here are all the bad things that could happen and the sole voice in my life that said this is lovely and something that most people do was Jilly Cooper. Ian, how does Jilly Cooper's writing about sex compare with the writing of D.H. Lawrence about sex? <laughs> well, I, almost indistinguishable, I think, <laughs> in many ways. I don't think they are quite the same. I think Lawrence's writing about sex is... Um, Although there is a kind of lyricism, sometimes there's also a um, uh, an awful repetitiveness in the way he writes about it. He does just kind of keep on saying the same thing in different times. Disfigured by his metaphysical concerns. Yes, it is a bit disfigured by his metaphysical. It's also disfigured a bit by his physical concerns and, <laughs> and constrained somewhat by the limitations on what he can say and get published. I suppose, womb and bowels, loins, dark, dark. It's really hard work, I think, finding fun in Lawrence's depictions of fun in sex. I suppose one thinks most of Mellors and Mm. Connie in Lady Chatterley's Lover, uh, where it is really pedagogic rather than exciting. It's 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 a lesson. I think I know what you're going to say here. Whereas in Jilly, it seems to me, is taking... Jilly is writing in an era where everything is freer. Well, that's certainly true. She is. And also she's writing in an era where it's possible to think of it as a kind of exuberance. Yeah. Uh, right. And it's a ple- it's an exuberant pleasure. It's, it's bawdy in the in, it's in, bawdy. In, in it's eighteenth century in the old l- sense. I mean, the, the, it's like know, the film wife, of like the film of Tom Jones. I mean, yeah, I know. Yeah. Always think with her gap tooth, she has that wife of Bath kind of you know that she enjoyed. Oh, she that's en- so funny! I have a friend, Duncan. Hello, Duncan, who said exactly the same thing that as a a young man he saw Jilly Cooper. At the time, he's reading the, the, um, the Canterbury Tales at school and Jilly and her gap made quite a profound impression on him. <laughs> but, you know, it, that we were talking earlier, but, you know, her, her line still in her 80s, you know, when she meets a man is to say, oh, how lovely to meet you. Gosh, you're good looking. Do you want to go upstairs? <laughs> I mean, we know that it's a joke, but she says, well, men don't have compliments paid to them mm. terribly often. As much as Lawrence, to be honest. I mean, if you're looking for solutions to metaphysical problems, Jilly Cooper may not be your writer. But what I, <laughs> what I do think that she does do, which I, what talking to, to, to women in the office, you know, who are at various levels, but on a, broadly on a, the woke scale, mostly woke and, and quite articulate about that, they love Jilly Cooper because they see her almost in mental health terms, mm. that she, they find her immensely comforting, she has a positive moral message to make about the, the value of sex and about the value of relationships and the importance of kindness and the importance of love in relationships. And that to be in her world is a very comforting and reassuring. She's certainly, Tina was saying that she said she's a really good author to 
read at times of stress. Yeah. Funnily mm. enough, what you were saying, you yeah, said yeah. I read these when I was doing my A levels. I sort of would. They were they were a, a, a release for me. They were a, they were a place to go and sort like, of like Woodhouse. I mean, I think for like Woodhouse mm. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've got a lovely little bit from the, one of her essays uh, for the Sunday Times. But it's, she know what the one of the other things is that she's now in her eighties, uh, eighty two, I think. And so remembers the war. And there's just a little bit about the celebrations at the end of the war. Perched on top was an effigy of Hitler with mad staring eyes, slick back hair, a little black moustache and a swastika armband. At last, the great pyre roared into golden flame. After 2,000 days of blackout, the brilliance was breathtaking. Birds disturbed by the unaccustomed brightness sang their heads off. Insects freaked out, moths bashing against the lights, colossal maybugs bombing us like doodlebugs. Looking across the garden, my mother suddenly stiffened, for there was my father laughing and shoving his hand down a blonde's dress. <laughs> but it was only old Lady Thornley again. This time her white hair was turned gold by the bonfire and my father was retrieving a maybug from her cleavage. <laughs> <laughs> but it's classic Jilly Cooper, you know, focus pull. It's, she's, she's a very, very, very good comic writer, I think. There are some great one-liners in Imogen. My favourite was the, the one, <laughs> Tracy, who is the really kind of towy member of the of the cast, has gone out with Nicky. And the line, I think, is delivered by Matt. Where's the pedalo? I hope Nicky hasn't sunk without Tracy. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, you, you say in your, you, in your essay about Jilly that the thing that, that you got from reading the books, and we shouldn't underestimate this, was pleasure. Mm. What are the pleasures that you think Jilly gives to the reader which you wouldn't get from another writer? What, are, what is the thing in her work that is, is so much...? I don't know that I go so far as to say there are no other writers that would provide similar pleasures, but I think I'm glad that John said comedy, comic, just now, because I think that comedy is a central element in pleasure because it has a happy ending. But I think... <laughs> I, I think that what she actually manages to provide is not so much, though perhaps to some extent in the the, the bonkbusters, guilty pleasures, the pleasures of um, of finding things that you wouldn't elsewhere said be find said. It's it's the pleasure of indulging fantasy and at the same time indulging it within quite strictly delimited scenarios which are written in such a way as to ensure that you can take them seriously within Mm. their limits and at the same time... It's full of jokes. To use the grim phrase, it's a safe space. It's a, Jilly, yes, a Jilly it Co- is. A Jilly Cooper <laughs> novel. A Jilly Cooper novel is a safe space. Please, can we talk about parties? Because it's Jilly Cooper's fault that I think I like parties. <laughs> this, well, is your, this is your last word on the matter. So Jill, this is your final statement. Jilly Cooper's parties are nearly always disastrous. <laughs> and that is, I think, one of the pleasures of them, because... You have the fun of going to the party, but you don't have to go. And one of the, I think, the (laughs) great, um, my friends, um, Caroline O'Donoghue and Ella um, Resbridger, both brilliant writers. They, um, Caroline does a brilliant podcast, Sentimental Garbage, where they talk about commercial women's fiction. And they said that people complain constantly about the tropes in commercial women's fiction. 
all writing has tropes, you know, sort of thrillers have tropes, yeah. science fiction has tropes, it's mm. not, but people are sort of keen to spot them on these. And what people think are the things like, you know, who the heroine is going to fall in love with. And, you know, but, but that's not, we know, we know who by page 20, it's the how that we're interested in. But also, it's the, you know, the way people kind of eat and drink and those parties. And there's a bit in, um, uh, prudence, I think, where there's a terribly glorious, the gorgeous, scatty mother has an impromptu party and everyone's having a terrible brandy cocktail and the taxman's turned up and she doesn't know what to do with him and everyone's sort of really enjoying this pate and there are lots of descriptions about, you know, gauchy men shoveling food into their mouths and... Um, I think they realise quite late on that it's like it's chappy or chum or, you know, they've been, um, they've served dog food up and everybody is just too pissed to notice. And I think that we read Jilly because, because of who we hope to be and who we know we are. And she makes both of those things hmm. not just okay, but things to celebrate. Don't you just want to go and have supper around at Jilly's? I mean, isn't that the ultimate? Honestly, I had lunch with her, with the rest of the Jilly Cooper. I was going to say fan club, book club, but definitely fan club. And... It was like Christmas Day and she was Christmas and I sort of loved her more as a human than a writer yeah. and I can't tell you how much I love her as a writer. She was, the same to Ian, radiant and I don't use that word lightly. <laughs> Ian, does that tally with your well, experience? It rather does. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It, I mean, it was, I, 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 I have fortunately had lunch with her a couple of times um, and... Um, it's always a joy. She is just the most generous human being, witty, intelligent, kind, thoughtful, yeah. drunk. It's um, <laughs> yeah. This is so Dr. Ian Patterson with let's face it, a bit of a crush now. <laughs> well, it's true. <laughs> so think on, Nikki. When I say drunk, darling, I don't mean drunk. I mean full of wine. Is there a difference? <laughs> yes, my darling, because I've given up vodka in a pathetic attempt to be slightly more sober. <laughs> That's exactly what I meant. Yes. <laughs> I do think Jilly has that in common with F. Scott Fitzgerald. Well, when characters are sort of working on their drinking and not wanting to be massive pissheads, they sort of they give up drink, but that doesn't include wine or beer. I would As... like listeners to make a list of all the writers that we compare Jilly Cooper to in this podcast. <laughs> Bach, Shakespeare, Fitzgerald, Lawrence um, Dickens. And remember what Tracy said about Fitzgerald. Yeah. She's quite good. Has she written anything else? <laughs> It seems a shame, being such a jolly super time that we're having to bring it to a close, but I must. Lashings of thanks to Daisy and Ian, to our lovely producer, and to our marvellously well-upholstered sponsor, Unbound. <laughs> ah, champagne. You, you can download all 83 of our other shows, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading on our website, backlisted.fm. And, of course, you can still contact us on Twitter Facebook and Boundless. Uh, if you've had as much fun as we all have, uh, why not spill out? Indeed, spilling out is a thing that happens in these books a lot. Why yes. not spill out a star, a star spangled review on iTunes or Spotify or whatever else you cozy up to for oral content? Thank you to uh, Ian Patterson. Thank you. <laughs> it was lovely to be here. I've enjoyed it very <laughs> Daisy much. Daisy Buchanan, thank you very much. It made me joyous as an otter. <laughs> yes, thanks awfully, everybody. We've had the most <laughs> marvellous evening. See you in a fortnight. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Oh, that was just great. That was fun. That was great. Oh, All right? Yeah. Great.
You can choose to listen to Backlisted with or without adverts. If you prefer to listen to it without adverts, you can join us on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Backlisted, where you also get bonus content of two episodes of Locklisted, the podcast where we talk about the books and films and music that we've been listening to over the last uh, couple of weeks.